Hey guys, welcome back to the Flourishing Competitor podcast. I'm your host, Charlie, and I've also got your co-host, Danny, here. And today we've got the fabulous Dr. Mike um, to speak to us today. Um, I'm going to let Dr. Mike give a little bit of a brief overview of who he is for those of you that might not know who Dr. Mike is. Um, so I'll hand over to you, Mike, to give a little bit of a, an introduction. Thanks very much. Um, my name is Mike. I am a doctor, hence that name. Um, I work as a GP and, a, and like a GP trainer and educator uh, and I kind of got into the fitness world a number of years ago um, through sort of changing my own kind of lifestyle and sort of seeking more knowledge on nutrition and fat loss and all of that sort of stuff and, and learning a bit more about training and things so um, through doing that I've ended up um, just I like speaking a lot so I just end up chatting to lots of people about lots of stuff that I feel quite strongly about and uh you know all of that stuff I I'm so bad at introducing myself on stuff like this because it just I feel like really cringy to like to say like good things so I just end up saying stuff that isn't that interesting oh, I talk a lot whatever. I think Mike it's really useful to have your perspective on certain topics that the fitness industry often discuss because thanks very much yeah, I think it's a very, very valid perspective and it's one that the industry really needs. So you deserve to credit yourself and you deserve to say positive things about yourself. Yeah, bless you. Very kind, very kind. I agree. And I think it, it, the, I guess the, the area that you sit in might be in, like you, you understand the fitness side of things as well. So there's not a kind of, I guess, there's no kind of dismissive element there. I think you very much take both sides into account. So yeah, I think that's what will work particularly well for people that will be listening to this podcast thanks and so us guys we're going to talk a little bit about some of the potential health implications that can come with chronic dieting and we're also going to talk about when you might want to seek professional support for those issues that can sometimes occur and distinguishing the difference between like minor issues that you might be able to deal with yourself or with your coach or your personal trainer and then more serious issues where you might want to actually look at getting into contact with your GP or a specialist of some kind. And so to kick off, Mike, what are some of the sort of long term physical health implications that should be considered or that we need to be aware of that can potentially occur as a result of chronically dieting? So, OK, I, there's a few. And I guess I guess the interesting part of this is is actually defining what we mean by kind of chronically dieting. Like, I think a lot of people actually, if you speak to most people, the majority of people are on and off diets all the time. Like the diet industry, diet culture is absolutely huge. So, um, you know, there may be many people who are, you know, who are always doing things like Slimming World and stuff like that. And and possibly the chronic effects of, of those sorts of behaviours may have some psychological implications, may have implications in terms of things like their relationship with food and stuff like that. But from a physical or nutritional perspective that potentially is not such a, a high risk because the likelihood is that they're getting all of the nutrients that they need etc um i think that the problem comes of kind of being people who are chronically underweight um and the effects that that can have i think that what people often forget is that when people are chronically in a calorie deficit or in a calorie deficit so kind of for a long period of time 
um, or are underweight, they don't only lose body fat, but they also lose lean body mass as well. So you're talking about muscle mass, um, which we know has positive physical effects um, in many ways, but also bone mass, which is a really important thing that people don't really think of or remember. Um, and that is due to a number of reasons. So, you know, just being kind of chronically underweight can do it as well, but also the hormonal effects of being underweight, particularly in females, for example, having a low estrogen effects from losing their period, et cetera, which is obviously one of the other physical effects, um, can have an effect on the bone density and the bone mass as well, which has long-term implications like developing osteoporosis which is a disease that means thinning of the bones um also even you know kind of even sort of not growing properly because a lot of this kind of stuff happens it will start to happen at least in adolescent and like teenage years so there are lots of effects from that perspective there are kind of physical side effects as well associated with conditions like eating disorders like anorexia um but I, I guess that's kind of delving into territory that's not, you know, not quite dieting, but sort of being kind of chronically or severely underweight for, for long periods of time. But, but um, even just just the dieting can cause the effects that we've that we've discussed so far. Um, so it's not sort of it's not something to be ignored. And I think it is it is really fascinating from the perspective of thinking about people like competitors, because they are essentially putting themselves into calorie deficits and dieting down to very low levels of body fat. It's not the same as um, somebody who is overweight going on a diet, trying to lose some body fat because it's a, it's a kind of different physiological, physiological um, level to which they're pushing themselves to. And I think that we can often, um, you know, we can often not see the wood for the trees from that perspective, because we're often talking about things like the dangers of dieting, but usually when we do that, we're talking about the psychological dangers of dieting for people who are potentially overweight or, of, or you know, of, of not particularly low weight already. Yeah. Um, and so that's quite different. Yeah. And it's difficult because obviously with competitors, they're aware that what they're putting their bodies through isn't healthy. Well, they should be anyway. Um, and they're going to see some of these negatives, but that doesn't mean that they should be completely ignorant to it and they still need to have an awareness and do what they can to minimize these negatives wherever possible. Um, you think that they are like generally aware of it? I mean, is it, I know that obviously you guys have, are coming from a like different perspective. You're kind of talking about this very openly, doing a podcast about it and stuff like that. You've been through it and sort of, I guess, come out the other side. But do you think that like in that competitive world, because I feel like sometimes, especially in places like Instagram, we've got our little echo chamber going now where yeah. we feel like everyone knows yeah. this stuff. But actually, when you if you go on TikTok and look at, you know, fitness TikTok or fitness YouTube or um, even sort of like social media content from other countries, um, I feel like there's a, a, still a massive, massive pocket of people that, that actually don't yeah. realise that this isn't necessarily it's really hard. <laughs> Yeah, I feel yeah. like I'm repeating myself a lot, but then like there are probably a lot of people that still need to hear what I'm trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like it's, I, it's hard. And I think a lot yeah. of there are some people that are aware and are ignorant. Mm -hmm. And there are some people that are probably completely unaware. 
um and I suppose yeah. that's why we're trying to spread the message that we're trying to spread on here I, I think that people have like a when the people say I know it's not healthy for me or it's not forever I think people think if they could maybe do a prep for example and then go into an off season then that's health like it's okay mm. because then they counteract it with an off season um and there's actually a difference between bringing yourself back up to full health and just increasing your calorie intake because I guess if we're thinking about disordered eating patterns and things like that and the different psychological implications that come from that they're most likely still there it's just the amount of food might have changed so all of those things wouldn't change and I guess I think people use the phrase that like oh you know it's not forever or you know I know that it's not healthy for me right now but I don't think they fully understand the long term and I I didn't when I was competing I didn't understand fully the long-term implications on on my health you know things like you touched on them with like um being osteoporotic you know with low estrogen counts and things like that and actually the very real fact that that's not reversible once you're in that state that you can improve it but you can't necessarily bring yourself you know not have osteoporosis if you did get Mm. to that level and I think Mm. yeah so I think there is kind of it's battered around that it's not healthy but I don't know if people fully understand what about competing isn't healthy yeah I agree and I I kind of I often reflect on this because I think I think the idea of risk is is really really fascinating the way that people interpret risk the way that people balance risk and make their decisions based around risk like is completely ridiculous like we are some of the stuff you know imagine some of the things that we're scared about doing that make no sense at all because there's like zero risk involved Yet some of the things that we know that are genuinely risky that we have no qualms about doing because we sort of feel like we know the outcomes. I think there's a lot of there are like I think a lot of kind of mechanisms in your brain that sort of protect you from thinking too much about the outcomes of the things that you're doing. Like, you know, and I I, I don't particularly want to get into kind of stuff like vaccines. But for example, like that, that's sort of been one of the, the big features of my life over the last couple of years is seeing. <laughs> people's like interpretation of risk when it comes to stuff like vaccine and and kind of thinking about the ideas that you've you've got somebody basically being told that they can get a you know like a virus that's you know high risk for all of these sorts of things but they're happy to play down those risks because the virus is something that they'll get by accident whereas when it comes to the vaccine they're like well I won't do that because that's something that I'm doing to myself I I haven't still kind of got my head around it um but I think also like a lot of people say stuff like oh yeah well I know the risks and I'm aware of all of it and I'm you know and it's all fine and I'm doing it but I'm not convinced that that people believe those risks and I think that's another another huge part of adolescence and youth is that we do feel invincible and I think this is why as people get older they start to actually you know realize their own mortality and realize that actually these aren't just words and and ideas that it's a possibility that somewhere in the future which doesn't currently exist I might have osteoporosis and start to realize that actually that's not just a possibility in the future but potentially a reality and I would, you know, it's a very similar um, concept to, you know, I was, I was very overweight for a very long part of my life. And of course I knew what the risks were, but I didn't, I don't think like in hindsight, I actually believed them. I don't think I kind of thought, well, you know, if, if I don't do something about this now, I am potentially going to be unwell with, you know, high blood pressure or have diabetes or all of these things in the future I knew that they were concepts but 
you know, who's thinking about their future diseases when they're like yeah. 18, 19, 20? It's just, it's not, and, I don't think we're built for that. Yeah, yeah we and, think about, it's that kind of age as well, isn't it? That you, if we're talking about competitors, a lot of particularly female competitors will get into the circles in their very early 20s when they're not thinking about these things. Yeah. It, it, like you say, it's the last yeah. thing that I think about. And I think we, we touched on it with, um, with, with Rosie talking about, it's the you know the last thing they think about is children so the actual it's not going to hit hard hit losing their menstrual cycle because well I don't want kids for another 10 years so that goes to the back of the head I guess maybe bringing to the forefront the other health implications of losing a cycle that aren't related to having children um but it still doesn't bring it to the reality because it's so far in the future and yeah. it does feel so distant that it's it, it's an I'll deal with that when situation maybe and again, from my experience, like I feel as though I was almost, I was aware, but I just didn't care at that phase in my life. I just didn't like, I didn't really care. I was like, so yeah. what? Do you know what I mean? Whereas I'm a very different person now to what I was then. And now I wouldn't dream of putting myself through what I did then. And I wouldn't dream of living my life the way that I did then. But then I didn't really care about the consequences that might mm. be. And so- it's, a, it's a competitive mentality though, isn't it as well? Because actually, essentially you are kind of in this environment where, it, where it's very much the status quo that you are there to make sacrifices to achieve this goal that is glorified and kind of exalted as this, like this is the be all and end all, like nothing else really matters. And there yeah. is there is that study, isn't there, that where they spoke to people who um, were kind of Olympic athletes yeah. and they were like, if you could win a gold medal, but you would be dead within three years, would you choose that over not winning a gold medal? And they were like, absolutely 100%. Because I think that, I think that's the thing is like, you know, when you are talking about, being in competition where you're essentially you know whether you really want to or not is another matter but you're essentially aiming and your focus is on being the best in the world at something of course there are sacrifices involved in that and actually in reality if you know if you if you probably like if you went and measured the health of every and there is obviously isn't an objective measure of health in inverted commas but if you went and measured the health if there was of everyone that fin- like crosses the finish line on like the London Marathon, <laughs> probably they would not be in the best like you know physical health of their life when they've done that either. Like actually, mm-hmm. there are a lot of things that we do, and some of them are, are more socially acceptable than others. Like I bet people who decide to run the London Marathon don't get loads of crap from like their friends and colleagues about you know how pointless and ridiculous it is. Um, but people who who compete in in physique sports do because you know there's a there's a certain like idea of vanity and stuff associated with it. So like I think there's a lot there's so much stuff to unpick because on one hand why are we why are we applying different logic to physique comp- competitions than we are to to stuff like marathons? It's just because probably partly because it's more socially acceptable, partly because they only happen once in a blue moon, and people tend to kind of just do them once, and it's a, you know a few weeks of training or a few months of training out of their lives and then it's kind of done but probably like you know there there are a lot of things to be considering with regards to stuff like you know orthorexia and reds and things like that in a lot of sports and a lot of competition and there's for decades and decades and decades there's just been this like that hustle mentality of it's all worth it for that you know plastic trophy or gold medal or whatever it is that you get at the end of it but is it though 
I don't know. I mean, it's easy for me to say as the least competitive person like on the planet, but you know, I can also understand why if you, you know, if you're driven by that sort of success, you're told to ignore all of those health implications. You're not just, you're not just ignoring them. You're told that they don't matter. Especially when your entire circle is made up of bodybuilders, like your, your echo chamber, like we spoke about previously is the people chasing the exact same goal and doing the exact same thing and telling you that that is success. So grind hard, the mentality. Yeah. Yeah. every environment every environment I think again is full of enablers enabling each other to do the behaviors that kind of fuel those bits of their their wants that might not necessarily be so healthy like you know it's in in every sort of culture that there is you know there are you know like I, I was reading a post on Instagram about kind of you know drinking culture based on you know society and and what country you're from and stuff like that and it's it's so true like because everyone else is doing the same things and telling you it's all normal you don't realize how harmful and damaging it is to you and it actually is you're almost you're and then you're shunned if you try and move away from it or try and focus on other aspects of your health or whatever because you're kind of you're, you're pushing your tribe away we see it in absolutely everything like you know you look at all these tribes and everything that we're developing on instagram between anti-diet and paleo and crossfit and all of these sorts of things and then when people decide they want to do something a little bit different everyone's like oh you've changed you know <laughs> yeah that's what it's definitely something huge is competing circles but do, do you think it's because the like for me i think it's because the barrier for entry is quite low like nowadays like especially for for young women that the barrier for entry is so low, but the potential risk, even from the low level entry point is really high. So it's like when you're saying, okay, yeah, if we did a London marathon, for example, like you say, it's, you know, you do a few weeks of training and then you do it and then, you know, you crack on and, and whatever, but for potentially for someone who's just gotten into a bit of training and looking after themselves to then just end up entering a bikini show, thrust into this world to come out of the other side of that in a year's time could re- be really detrimental for a very long time. Um, yeah. So it's almost I don't maybe that I don't know like it's meant to be an extreme sport isn't it like actually if you speak to you know if you speak to people like Jordan Peters about it and you know people who compete at high levels you know I think even they will talk about how you've got everyone like in, in the olden days people used to kind of you know train for years and years and years before they would even think about competing and then do like maybe one kind of regional show and then you know maybe like a national show like the following year or whatever and you know it, it would the fact that they would still be training and still really focused on it for years without the that kind of instant gratification of trophies and stuff was because they were I guess you know fully into you know they were fully into the sport that was kind of their passion they were passionate about it and you know by by nature it is a niche sport it's an extreme sport isn't it whereas now you know with the increase in the, the the different categories that are available for all sorts of different different like levels I mean they they even kind of do stuff like transformation categories so like you're even you're even sort of told like there's a category for every type of person like so actually in in some ways you're like well you know you've got all these people who would never consider competing thinking oh look they've got this category I should do that why should you did you want to do it before that category existed like it it sort of is it's it's unusual but it, again people get swept up in what other people are doing I think as well and actually yeah. like you know you see you see other people kind of especially if something like 
being on a stage and having people clap for you in any capacity appeals to you in some way you know like if people go and watch their friends compete and go oh I train with them like I go to the gym with them I sort of do what they do and like maybe I should do that as well um you know you can see where where people kind of get into it and like I've I've had lots of friends who have like who I probably would never have said I reckon they'll compete at some point who have ended up competing and like with with kind of mixed levels of of outcome and and like I remember one of my friends saying that like he just absolutely hated every minute of it like from the moment he had to walk onto a stage to the moment like he like he said he didn't even stay for the evening bit because he physically hated being there so much and had had no real um expectation that that would be the case until the moment that he actually stood on the stage and so you just think like actually people are just falling into this activity that is quite a high risk I suppose and that's kind of pushed it with social media it's blown up at the same time social media has right so yeah. it's kind of all snowballed as it's been thrust yeah. into people's faces so yeah it, for quite a long time it was seen as a way to increase your social media profile like I remember yeah. people yeah. saying like, oh yeah I'm competing because it's exposure and all of that kind of stuff and you know it, it's like well, that you know there must be there must be other ways of, of increasing your social media profile than than doing that like but yeah. I, again I don't want to sound like I'm being in any way negative towards the the process of competing like I say I have got a lot of friends who compete I'm very supportive of them I think that if you if it's something that you're passionate about and that you want to do and you know the risks then like for sure crack on like with anything else like you know skiing's really dangerous as well rugby's really dangerous like a lot of a lot of things that people do all the time are really really dangerous but if you're doing it for the wrong reasons then i think it's important that you kind of recognize that and and modify your um you know modify your actions but that's that's up to the individual to to figure out yeah and just a quick note on doing it for a social media following as well i would really question that for people that might be doing that for the purpose of building a business where they're coaching yeah. the general population because the general population yeah, they might, people might follow competitors if they think it looks cool or like impressive or whatever, but the likelihood is they're not going to be able to resonate with a coach who push the, pushes themselves to that extreme and wants to yeah. sacrifice their health and commit their entire life to that goal. They're not going to be able to resonate with that person. So if you're a coach coaching like the general population, it's probably not going to help your business to actually compete. And, that, and you won't be able to resonate with them as a coach either because how can you place, if you're coming from a place of kind of I go all in, it's really, really hard because I, I I was still competing when I started obviously going turning self-employed. So I found it really hard to kind of set a, a realistic expectation for a client based on the fact that I go all in. So I think that is something to think about as well as a coach that if you really want to be able to resonate with them on that level, learning about how general population live is really, really important. Um so we, we touched a little bit before, Mike, with in terms of sort of physical implications um, on health in terms of competing. In terms of psychological implications, where do we kind of start in terms of differentiating between normal human emotions, such as like sadness um, and more maybe serious mental health struggles that may come up for competitors um, that someone might need to seek more professional help for? Very good question. 
Um, I think the first thing that I would say is that um, when it comes to seeking professional help, I definitely don't think that, that any any struggles don't need to be severe. So you don't need to be having kind of severe mental health struggles to, to seek professional help. Um, in fact, I think that, that, that a lot of people would very much stand by the idea that even if you have no mental health struggles, things like therapy can be really helpful and useful. Obviously, it's a massive privilege to, you know, to, to have therapy in the absence of, of um, you know, like mental health disorders and stuff like that. But um, I think the idea that we need to be kind of at breaking point before we start to, to work on our mental health is um, is not a not like a um, one that I would that I would want to, to push. I think it's I think it's important if you think you need help with something, get it um so but i would say like in terms of figuring out what's normal for you i think is quite important like i think that we all have different character traits and different um approaches to problems we all have different uh, differing amounts of resilience and stuff as well and and that's nothing to kind of be ashamed of or particularly proud of because like a lot of these things are genetic a lot of them are environmental so you know that the, there's mixtures of, of why we behave in different ways in response to different things and a lot of um things are related to, to things like trauma and stuff like that and our experiences in life so we will cope with different scenarios differently and that's okay it doesn't mean that you know someone's a snowflake and someone's really tough and awesome like and i, I think that that can be quite frustrating in, in how sort of mental health is is portrayed like um in the media and things it's just you know like if we accept how we are then it means that we can work on it and improve it and i think that's quite important um but essentially when you're looking at kind of what's normal versus what's like a bit more of a problem i think that the two things to be looking at are the severity of the emotions themselves um and the impact that they have on your life but also how long they last I said two things, didn't I? But I'm on number three already. So how long they last? And then number four um, would also be whether you think they're in proportion to what the problem is. So like if you find yourself being, um, you know, particularly like like I use anxiety as an example, because that's a really useful one. Like if you're doing if you're standing on stage doing a talk in front of a, a group of people that you don't know it is totally normal to be anxious. I think everybody would completely accept that. So anxiety, the emotion in itself is not, it's not abnormal in itself. And there are many situations where it's perfectly normal to feel anxious. Um, I would probably expect somebody to feel more anxious in that situation than they would um, if they were meeting a close friend for coffee, for example. So if you were going to meet a close friend for coffee and you were finding yourself feeling as anxious as you feel, you probably would feel if you were, going to do a talk on a stage then probably that's the sign that you, you you know that your anxiety is a bit more than it should be for that situation right but that's when it's kind of important to, to recognize and to, to sort of think about things that you could be doing about it and there doesn't always have to be necessarily professional help but there's lots of kind of self-help resources and stuff online as well um but i think that what professionals can be really useful for and i think we are lucky in this country that we've got an NHS where we can, you know, you might have to, you might have to wait a while for a GP appointment, but you can still make one. Um, and actually being able to discuss with a professional whether what you're feeling is is normal or not, or whether it's kind of something that that should that that needs some form of intervention. Um, and we're quite fortunate to be able to do that. And actually, I don't see 
particularly a problem if you think that something is abnormal to it doesn't you know like I say I don't think you have to be at breaking point before you seek help um but it's hard to kind of think of a framework of exactly what it is that makes it you know a problem and what makes it normal life I think it's a it's it's a mixture of things I mean obviously like from a medical perspective there are diagnostic criteria for all of the different types of mental illness and there's a certain number of criteria that you would need to fulfill in order to you know to to, to be diagnosed with a problem and so I think I think it's not necessarily hugely useful for me to delve into those things but at the same time I think that it's it's worth looking into if you think that things are you know like if you're if if something happens that's like fairly minor but it's making you feel sad but it's still making you feel sad kind of weeks later that's potentially a sign that there's an issue like if you are again feeling really sad or tearful or low and there doesn't seem to be any reason why another reason that you know like there are lots of examples but actually giving a specific structure I think is tricky I feel like I've just been speaking for ages now so I'll stop (laughs) no that was really helpful Mike and that's helpful I'm going to adapt this next question slightly because I think it would be good to come at it from a slightly different perspective. Are there any sort of signs that we might find helpful to look out for that our peers might be struggling with mental health and any ways in which we might help the people around us? Sure, right. So I think, again, it can be incredibly difficult. Like looking at the mental health of others can be really, really challenging. I think that people are very, very, very good at putting on brave faces. And I think the people often with the with the the toughest of problems are sometimes the best at hiding them. And we know that from seeing how many, you know, very tragic suicides we see in the media all the time. And, you know, very common theme about how they're described is that people didn't, like people had no idea that those people were were suffering or struggling um so it's a really good question but really really difficult one to answer i think if you notice a change in behavior of any kind um i think there's a you know like follow your intuition if you think that something's the matter you know bring it up openly and talk about it i think sometimes the more uncomfortable you feel about bringing it up probably the more likely it is to be a reason to you know that you should perhaps be bringing it up or that they might kind of benefit from from bringing it up but it can also be really challenging because if people aren't ready to talk about it you might find that then they might distance themselves from you and actually so you've got to be very careful and very sensitive about how about how you do it um and that often is a is a question best answered by the person who is you know the friend of that person because if you've known somebody for a long time you know you might find that that you'll probably you'll probably know how they might want things like that to be brought up because it might have come up before um or potentially think about talking to somebody who's closer to them than you are for example and see if they might you know have some insight into it or want to but then obviously you've got to be careful about you know talking about people kind of behind their backs as well like you know you don't want to be breaching their confidentiality also in in any way um but i think changes in behavior if they if people are sort of seeming more withdrawn not wanting to interact as much um seeming low talking less talking about different things sort of alluding to problems but not kind of really bringing them up sort of just generally sort of being withdrawn 
um you know even even talking about other talking about things in other ways like people often talk about feeling stressed or having tough times or dark thoughts or you know people will often speak around it rather than speaking directly about the, the topic struggling with sleep um is often quite a big one and appetite as well feeling fatigued like low energy levels um and again in i guess in the fitness world like you know not training as much not you know not focusing in the same way that they would on on those sorts of sides of goals not being as motivated um so many things so many things to kind of look out for i think that as well something that danny and i have definitely i think seen maybe with, with clients probably and i guess relative to people that will be listening to this podcast is if we, we are speaking to people that have spent a long time competing for example and maybe something that we tend to sometimes see if people are having struggles they can sometimes mask it with doing show preps and things like that um we see as quite a common a common thing um that then when people come out of bodybuilding they're not only dealing with coming out of social circles and and things that we've discussed prior but then also having to face things that they might have possibly pushed down as well so um and a lot of from a coaching perspective what danny and i have spoken about um you know keeping connected with people and keeping in circles and things like that and yeah and all of the things you can do to to support that transition but I do think that all of this is helpful in regard to making sure that people know that there is someone on the other side in terms of mm-hmm. professional help and like you said that they don't have to be at a breaking point if they are struggling and particularly for people that might be listening through maybe that process where they are maybe starting to deal with some things they might might have like pushed down for a long time that they don't have to be knocking on the doors almost to yeah. be to, to be getting help and in terms of um like service availability and stuff and it, it's very easy for me to say because i'm on i'm kind of on the other side of it so i sort of see what the availability is but i don't necessarily see what the unmet demand is so i so like for example i know that we have um mental health support workers that work in gp practices so you can make an appointment with a mental health support worker um who they can't prescribe medication but they can sort of talk to you and figure out you know what might be going on and and sort of signpost you in the right direction up whether you might need some therapy or whether you might need some self-help or whether you might need to read a specific book or whether you might need an appointment with a gp to discuss medication or a referral to mental health services um, I know that those things are available and I know that let's say for example for at my practice if you wanted to make an appointment with one of those people the lead time would be like a, a couple of weeks but I also accept that that might not be the same across the whole country for example so it's easy for me to say those things and go, oh yeah just make an appointment with you know x y or z but I know that it's not always so easy in in, in real life um but that's why those sort of things have been introduced because previously like it wasn't so easy to get an appointment with your GP and it was realized that not everybody necessarily needed a GP to have that discussion they perhaps needed somebody who had a level of expertise that might be able to help that sort of triage process of say like actually you you just need this or you just need this or you just need this um and also everyone can now access access things like talking therapies without having to go through their GP as well. So those processes are available too. As you can imagine, they are, I think, very highly subscribed. So there are waiting lists when it comes to that as well. But they, again, do tend to triage things. So they do a sort of phone call triage to start with and then put people on the appropriate waiting list. So there are ways around it. 
you know if it, if it is if it is a long way as well so there is i feel like in the last few years there has been an improvement in the resources but i think there has also been an improvement in the de- sorry an increase in the demand as well yeah yeah like it's good that's quite nice there's been an improvement in the awareness and like I feel like there's less of a stigma there's obviously Mm. still problems there but I feel like there is less of a stigma against like mental health struggles and people are more open about it but I think then that also comes with the issue of some people maybe um and this is not to say that you shouldn't seek help if you do feel like there is a cause for concern because you absolutely should but there's also probably a bit of an increase in people that are I don't know maybe feeling sadness and then thinking oh no like is there a cause for concern when actually sadness is a normal human emotion and we should feel a full spectrum of emotions and that's very healthy um so yeah it's it's hard I think there's a there's a lot of pathologizing of emotion that, that goes on and it's hard because people aren't experts and everyone now has these big platforms and opinions and everybody's got a voice and an audience which you know has has a huge amount of advantages but also does have some disadvantages as well so you've got people on instagram talking about their experiences of anxiety and etc and it's great i want people to be open about it and talk about it but people aren't always talking about it as someone who's experienced a situation they're sometimes talking about it as an expert on that situation and that is a problem um because again you've got a lot of people going around worrying that they've got a disorder or an illness a disease when actually they don't they've just got life um and that doesn't mean that they don't need help like life is hard like life is hard and people sometimes need support to go through some of the things that they're going through and actually you know when it's particularly when we can't make wave that magic wand and fix all of those problems that might be going on people do need extra support they might even need things like medication as well it isn't but i think it's it's recognizing that you don't you don't need to have an illness to need support but also if you need support it doesn't mean you have an illness as well or if you if you have an emotion it doesn't mean that you have an illness and i think that it is like yeah i i think that it is because and actually i think part of the problem is that we've reduced the stigma around mental health and mental well-being so everyone's like really happy to talk about it if they're feeling a bit anxious great but we haven't really reduced the stigma around mental illness so you've not got that many people with schizophrenia talking about it on social media or or people with like psychotic disorders or or, uh, like full-blown bipolar disorder talking about their experiences with that right so actually people aren't necessarily seeing how serious those mental illnesses can be OCD stuff like that so people are then happy to go around you know calling themselves OCD is an adjective because they like to tidy their house when in reality if they were seeing what OCD really was they probably would maybe not be calling it that um and I think that a lot of it is just it's just semantics but actually words are also quite powerful and we have to remember that you know when when we use those words we not only um like spread this idea of like pathologizing quite normal behavior like hygiene um but we also belittle the the like stories of people with serious mental illness so that when they're too unwell to work with their OCD, for example, 
their employers are thinking they're just off work because they want to tidy the house you know like yeah. it, it has these real these real world disadvantages when we you know when we don't kind of speak truthfully about these conditions as conditions and we we just speak about these kind of low level you know very instagram friendly you know ideas of it yeah cool it's it's great it's great to you know to be mindful and to meditate and to do all these things and they have huge impacts and it's really important because if you don't address your mental well-being it can lead to mental illness if you you know if you com completely ignore it so there is a huge place for these things i don't want to belittle them and i don't want to um shout people down or be elitist about it i think everybody should be able to talk about their experience but i just think that the context needs to be a little bit more deliberate and a little bit more transparent yeah yeah 100 it almost kind of you risk being it a bit reductionist of what it actually could be and I think in the fitness industry like you say there's it's so hard I think for people to distinguish between experts and influencers and yeah. and actually just because people have got a following or a blue tick or you know if they're speaking with authority on something that is completely anecdotal um the line can be quite quite blurred for a lot of people and yeah, yeah. It's, it's a tough place to be but um, that runs quite nicely into the next question, actually. In terms of GP support, um, how might a GP be, a GP, um, be able to offer support for those suffering with symptoms exasperated by chronic dieting? So the physical things such as menstrual health implications um, or struggling with their mental health, um, particularly after like, stepping away from competing. How could someone approach this conversation with their GP? I think the thing to, to kind of be clear about is that that GPs are very accustomed to people coming to see them about absolutely anything. Like that's why most people become GPs is because they like the variety and they like the idea that someone can come in and talk about, you know, problem with their hip in one consultation, a problem with their mental health in the other. And then like, you know, um, the problem with the like chest infection in another consultation is completely wide variety. And it's got its advantages because it means like as a career, it's really interesting and you get to, to experience loads of stuff, but also you're not, always an expert in everything that walks through the door and that can be quite that can be quite daunting from a GP perspective but it can also be quite daunting from a patient perspective and I think when you go and see a GP um, like often people are backed with a lot of preconceptions and a lot of ideas and you know sometimes like I recognize as well by the time that somebody comes to see me and the GP they might have had quite a difficult journey to get to that appointment they might have phoned up many times to try and book an appointment and one might not have been available and then they might have had to wait a really long time and you know they've been building up and building up and building up for ages to actually decide to go and see a GP and then they've had this massive slog to actually get you know the appointment and then they come to see you and they've already got you know, all of these kind of preconceived notions about how helpful you might be, how knowledgeable knowledgeable you might be about this, because they might have spoken to a lot of their friends who said, well, I went to see my GP about that, and they were completely useless. So, you know, sometimes you're, you're kind of, you're crawling uphill with, with a lot of these situations, because you're already, you've got the odds stacked against you as the GP, because someone's expecting you to be terrible. Um, and that is something that is that, that can be quite challenging, but obviously is, is always hard, a harder situation for the patient to be in than, than for the doctor. And it's our jobs as the doctor and as the professional in that situation to try and, you know, bring that kind of the, you know, to, to, to bring the conversation to, to where it needs to be in terms of, of trying to help that person. And there's lots of kind of, there's lots of ways of doing that, but I think also it's naive to say that 
that many GPs are going to have a huge amount of experience and understanding about, uh, you know, physique competitors journey. There might be kind of preconceived notions from their end as well, in terms of what they're expecting or what they kind of perceive to be the issue. And, and, you know, we're all humans kind of doing this, this as well. So I guess what I would be trying to encourage is then people to always just try and interact on a human level to kind of speak up about the things that are, you know, like if actually if you think that a GP isn't like necessarily sort of taking it seriously or whatever, then it's okay to say something. Like you don't necessarily need to be kind of confrontational or rude or or nasty about it. But you know, I've had patients say to me before, um, actually I felt after that conversation, I felt a bit like you didn't really care about what was going on. And that kind of, you know, if you're somebody who who is there to be caring and that's happened, something's gone wrong along the way, right? So, you're, you know, you're likely, I think, well, I, I can't speak for everyone. I can only really speak for myself. But I know that, you know, when that's been said to me, it's like, it's an awful thing to hear. And you want to do everything that you can cap- that you can do to try and, you know, make sure that that person realizes that that's not the case. Um, because again, we all communicate in vastly different ways. And you've got this 10 minute consultation, you might be looking at a computer, and this is going on, and you're running an hour late, and somebody's come in and is talking to you about something that you're not quite sure about. And, you know, there's all of these things that interplay into this interaction that, that might not always make it 100% perfect. And we're always trying to, you know, to counteract that. Um, but in answer to your actual question that you asked, which I haven't answered yet, um, I think that, you know, like the point of a general practice consultation is to tell the doctor what the problems are and what the issues are and have them help you figure out a way to resolve them. So it's going to depend on what the, you know, what the different issues are in terms of how they're going to be fixed. Like, so for example, you might focus on particular things first but it's not it's not one appointment i think that's what people often forget is you don't have to have everything resolved within that one appointment there's often going to be a journey that's going to be involved in in what you're doing particularly with a situation like that which is quite complex and like you say could have some certain mental health aspects to it and certain physical health aspects to it um you know a, a particular example that that i can think of is you know people that i've seen be quite critical of gps for putting women on the pill um if they've got amenorrhea secondary to um to their diet or their athletic kind of lifestyle um and sort of it being described as this sticking plaster and and the gp is only interested in in you know resolving the problem on the surface and not interested in addressing the deeper issue and from you know in conversations about that the things that i've explored is that the idea that actually the majority of the work that actually is going to need to be done to resolve the underlying issue is going to come from from the patient from the competitor um, and we can kind of help facilitate those things and help guide them in the right direction and help signpost them to the kinds of services that might be able to help them um, and also give a certain amount of fairly low level advice to be fair but the work needs to come from the person um, and so actually often the focus is going to be on the on other aspects of it as well like what can you do in the meantime to help safeguard that person while they're doing all the things to make them you know to make them better ultimately and one of those things is going to be trying to reduce 
the risk of physical harm from the situation that they're currently in. And that will often be by ways of things like, you know, things like the contraceptive pill. And the, the reason for that would be in this particular situation is that hypothalamic amenorrhea is associated with low levels of estrogen, um, low body weight and low levels of estrogen are associated with low bone density and a risk of osteoporosis. And the longer that people are in that state, the higher the risk of that. So the combined oral contraceptive pill has an impact on the estrogen levels, which then can therefore help prevent that from happening further down the line. So it's not a sticking plaster to necessarily give you a fake period and just put, you know, just, just to just give you your menstrual cycle back. It's more a sticking plaster, yes, to try and stop things from breaking down further while you're addressing the underlying issues. Um, and in many ways, like we, we do those things in a lot of scenarios, like in depression, for example, if somebody is suffering from, you know, depression that is likely to respond well to something like cognitive behavioral therapy, but they're in such a low state that they can't do their job or manage their relationships or look after their kids while we're waiting, you know, potentially months and months for this CBT to actually quote unquote, fix the issue what are you going to do just accept that or are you going to try and you know perhaps improve how they're feeling through means of medication in the meantime i think people see medication as like a cop-out or as some sort of admission of failure which does and that you know even people addressing it like that and talking about it in that way perpetuates that stigma and makes people feel like they shouldn't be on medication and so then that makes them feel like when the gp wants them to go on medication or advises them to go i mean this is another thing that's really important to say is like everyone is in charge of their own body and their own health if people don't want to do stuff like it doesn't it doesn't necessarily of course you like as a doctor you want your patients to do things that are going to make them feel better but if a patient turns around and says to me I don't want to be on this medication and I've made sure that they've understood all of the risks and the benefits of being on that medication, then it's their decision. There's no, there, there should never be an emotional attachment to it from my perspective. I'm there to kind of, to give people the best advice that I can and advise them on how they should, how they could best treat the problem. But if they've got different ideas and they want to do it a different way, I don't, I don't like, I'm not going to receive benefits from them being on that medication for example so it's not like it's not there's no conflict of interest there in terms of in terms of that so yeah i don't know yeah. i mean i suppose there are we do have medication targets and stuff like that for like for blood pressure and things like that so you might but they're so minuscule that you're not gonna you know you're not gonna hammer somebody to be on blood pressure medication because you might get more money at the end of the month it didn't really work like that although i think a lot of people would like to believe that that is the case yeah. yeah it's like choose I guess I think in some instances like if like you say if, if people go into a consultation thinking about that narrative that their friend just got put on the pill or, or whatnot it's kind of almost hearing what they want to hear from the consultation and maybe ignoring the part where you spoke about all the things you're going to do in in the meantime and just just seeing the outcome but it's that multifaceted approach right like you spoke about in terms of mental health and the physical implications of, of regaining a menstrual cycle for example yeah. of it being okay a bit of a three-prong yeah. approach here this is what you're going to do yeah. and this is how we're going to manage in the meantime and I guess something that we have spoken about with, with clients and one of those things is is stress reduction yeah if, if you're someone who's worrying about getting pregnant for example or 
or the whole regaining the cycle anyway that actually that might reduce stress for some part mm-hmm. of that and actually mm-hmm. make the process easier um and actually seeing that as part of the jigsaw rather than a diversion away mm-hmm. completely yeah yeah and i think it's completely normal by the way like when you go and see a doctor for 10 minutes like you're you're probably in like quite a heightened sort of you, you know state of of you know this is quite an important 10 minutes for you and and you've got to try and remember everything that they say it's very very normal that people will come away from a, a gp consultation and either have not taken certain parts of it away or have focused on particular bits of it or they've been told something that's shocked them a little bit and then they found it hard to listen to other things that, that gp might have said or the gp might have said something in a way that's upset them and then you know like th- there's so many different aspects of that as well and I, i'm just really keen to to point out that that's not that's not strange or abnormal that's a like completely normal part of life like when you go and see a doctor it's a stressful situation yeah. um and actually it's if if you if you kind of come away from that and you're like actually there was questions i had that i didn't ask or there were things that i wanted to mention or um you know things that i think weren't explored that i would like to explore you know you can book a follow up appointment i know that that's again it's easier said than done and like I think that's another thing that people people often forget that GPs are also patients like we all have our own GPs and we have to make our own doctor's appointments and stuff as well and face exactly the same issues that everybody else does um but at the same time it is it is normal to feel like that when you know in a in a medical professional sort of situation yeah and I think in the fitness industry, just touching back on the pill, it is very common for that to be demonized. But another example of where it really has its place is when people have like periods that severe that they literally cannot go to work. That is majorly impacting their lives. So that is uh, another example of where the pill might be appropriate to enable them to actually go to work and make a living. Like it, it's like risk versus reward. And oh, there's lots of situations where the pill is like completely appropriate. And it's it's like it's been a bit um, it's been a bit of an alien concept to me because I never I never really realized there was like such an issue or so many people had such an issue with with the pill. Um, and I, I can't remember what I think I I did a post on something about um, it was something kind of hormone related on Instagram and loads of people talking about kind of their GP putting them on the pill. I was like, like, no, you don't have to just, if you don't want to be on a medication that your GP is suggesting, like there's not, we can't sentence people to being on medication. It's not, it it doesn't really work like that. And I just, I I don't know why, like where it's kind of got that reputation from, but again, it just might be a very naive way of me looking at it. And I, you know, I only really know about what, you know, about my own experience. So it's very difficult to, kind of you know to talk about or understand necessarily the experiences of people that people have had in those situations so again I don't I, I don't want to belittle them at all but they were sort of I, I found myself being quite surprised at this kind of idea that the you know that there was such you know like a you know such a problem with it or it was a it was not a good thing to do yeah I think there is probably our generation actually I guess similar to when you see a generation of women that are afraid of HRT because of old research and things like that I think our generation might be that generation for the pill I think maybe when things were kind of it felt like everyone was getting put on Mm. on the pill for example at a certain age and then maybe now actually there's actually a lot of 
with widely accepted methods of contraception Mm -hmm. that everybody's tarring it with the same same brush very easily and I think rather than exploring that and making informed choices exploring it themselves and with their GP Mm. it is just a mentality of this this is is bad or this is wrong shouldn't shouldn't be done um and that's kind of the narrative that people I guess or the lens that people see it through yeah 100% and so the next question Mike is a little bit about our relationship with food which we know can sometimes take a hit when we push our bodies to the extreme through bodybuilding And it often actually isn't like it's more widely spoken about now, but there's still many people that struggle with their relationship with food, but still compete. And some of them aren't even aware of it. Are there any signs that you would like look out for that could indicate it's time to seek professional help aside from that of a PT or coach with someone's relationship with food? um so i would probably recommend because I like i in kind of giving out lists like this i always worry that i'll miss out really massive important things so i would always just recommend having a look at kind of you know learning a little bit about kind of eating disorders and stuff from the information leaflets on the, on the nhs website on the on the beat website um there's loads of resources and information about there about kind of things things to look out for but i guess it's what what you're trying to I guess figure out is whether there are any rigid behaviors that you are doing which are um it's which are which you can't bring yourself out of I guess for example like like and I think that what's really difficult and challenging with relationship with food as a as a topic is that what is a normal relationship with food I think that most of us have had times in our lives where you know food plays a role that it probably shouldn't be playing or is restricted in a way that it shouldn't be restricted especially in bodybuilding where basically the whole process is not what we would call a healthy relationship with food exactly exactly because you're using food in a very different way to how people would use food in normal life like you're using it for to fuel training and you're using it to restrict body fat you know like it it becomes kind of like a almost medicinal sort of process it's like the food becomes macros rather than actually being food but like societally food plays like a huge role in so many different aspects of our lives um you know like again I've thought so much about this in my life because I've kind of gone through lots of levels of of the spectrum you know I've been very overweight and I've been you know like I remember a time in my life where I would go out for dinner almost every day like after work we would go to the pub and I would always always eat at the pub um but and I remember there was a time in my life when I couldn't really handle the idea of not ordering dessert as well as you know like it was almost like every every meal out had to be like amazing and that's not that's not normal like other people aren't ordering dessert but you are so you're not using it for a so you know for its kind of social aspect and all of that kind of stuff you're kind of just you're overeating basically right so then at the same time I've been in situations where I've been on a 
transformation plan or whatever and i know it's it's obviously like i've never dieted to the levels of of um you know that that competitive bodybuilders would but i have dieted for you know like a photo shoot um and i have you know i've been like there was photo shoots when i was i remember being on 1700 calories for you know for on my diet so i remember situations where i went to a wine and cheese tasting and i had a diet coke and that's kind of quite weird but then I reflect on was that damaging because actually I went to it so I still got the social aspect I just didn't have the food but it's quite weird isn't it like you kind of it's really difficult to kind of establish where the threshold of weirdness actually is like is it weirder to go to um, a wedding and take a Tupperware with you or is it weirder to not go to the wedding because you're on a diet or should you be sacrificing your goal now again that comes down to what the goal is if you're an olympic athlete and you did that probably no one would bat an eyelid because you say oh he's he's in training for the rowing olympics or whatever um, i don't know why i picked that sport i've never rowed in my <laughs> life um but you know like it, you know if you're doing it because you are on an eight-week transformation plan with a pt to lose a few pounds then it's just not necessary. Like, you know, it's, and then you're kind of, you're almost developing this kind of weird restrictive relationship with food for kind of no reason. And then, you know, I remember being on a plan where um, I was, the plan was no wheat, sugar or dairy, but you were allowed one cheat day a week. And so I would, um, and obviously I'm sure everyone listening knows the the problematic nature of the terminology around cheat days and cheat meals and all that kind of stuff. But I manipulated the cheat day so that instead of it being one day of the week, it started at 8 p.m. the day before and finished at 8 p.m. that day. So I would squeeze in like extra food and it became this really bizarre, like kind of binge restrict mentality. But again, I was doing that because that was the plan that I was put on by a professional and actually when another professional told me I didn't need to do that, I then changed my behavior and it switched very easily to another approach and another significantly more flexible approach. But I think that how much trouble you have in switching those approaches, I think is indicative of how much of a, of a problem that you might have with the eating patterns themselves is when they start to become reinforced and start to become more rigid and start to become like almost like delusional in their nature when you're you know when you've got really false images with regards to your kind of body image um you know excessive body checking all of the things that are associated with kind of chronic dieting i think like i say i think we've all experienced some level of you know disordered eating but it's the impact that it's having on our lives it's the impact it's having on our relationships and like you say when you're stuck in an echo chamber and you're only socializing with people who have all of those same issues you might not even really pick up on it yeah and then actually like you know in some ways you think well maybe that's just your like your the culture of the people that you're with and your lifestyle and actually you don't really know whether it's causing damage or not because it's not damaging your relationships but then when someone in the group changes for example then it starts to, to damage those relationships and it, you realize like if a relationship is based on 
what food you're eating it's a bit weird it's isn't not it? really a relationship yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um yeah. so in the context of competing would you say that one of the warning signs might be if a competitor say they does they do a contest prep and then they move into what would be their improvement season or off season mm. but they struggle to let go of the behaviors that they had during the prep would you say that's a little bit of maybe um a red or a pink flag yeah, I would. I mean, absolutely. But I think also it's, it's very natural to feel like that because you've also, you've kind of got, if you've, if you've put being in this state physically as the pinnacle of your achievements, and then suddenly you're, you're looking in the mirror and you don't look like that anymore. That's a really hard thing for people to, to get their heads around. And again, it's quite understandable that people will have those problems. And what will often happen is, you know, is rather than it being, um, necessarily that they'll struggle to to let go of those behaviors they'll often end up sort of again like alternating between kind of binging and and restricting because they're kind of bits of them are happy that they're not competing and they end up in these sorts of binge cycles and then they think that they need to make up for it by then sort of over restricting um but again like it, it is such an individual thing isn't it like some people will some people hate prep and really look forward to kind of the off-season part of it and some people actually hate the you know the off-season part of it I've like I I had always found from my perspective that I when I was because I was dieting for many many years and I would always struggle I would always lose weight and be sort of at a level that I was happy with and then I would want to go to maintenance but I would never be able to stick with my maintenance calories because I was no longer dieting so I could no longer accept these restrictions so I was like well I'm not dieting so I can have an extra portion of that or whatever I don't know, I live a little it doesn't really matter so I then think that then when you when you start to behave like that you then your gut kind of knee-jerk reaction is to then want to start dieting again so mm -hmm. I think it is it's very it's a very common kind of factor in it yeah, and I think that is something that's really common with competitors and it's something that Danny and I have definitely spoken about is that kind of notion of coming out of a prep and it being tough, like it being really hard to accept kind of, right, I'm working on, I hate the word balance, but like I'm working on building a balanced life and maintaining and, and what that looks like. That Actually, it becomes that tough that they just decide to compete again or mm. they always have to have a photo shoot lined up or something to be working towards because actually they really really struggle to let go mm. of that restraint yeah. um and that then the more socially acceptable way of doing that where they're saying right okay well now i'm moving away from prep but mm. there's always still something there to be yeah. working towards which yeah. means the behaviors don't change but actually what it looks like on the outside might do so therefore it's a little bit mm. more socially acceptable um and i think that is something that's that's really really common and, and then just like i guess you said with would then go over a little bit instead it either becomes a case of because it becomes tough they fall back in or someone might say well I just reject looking after myself altogether because I actually mm -hmm. I'm either on it or I'm off it and yeah. the gray area is actually a really hard place to be yeah that's everything for questions isn't it yeah Mike do you have anything that you would like to add that you think it would be beneficial for our audience to hear um uh you know what I think it's like I think that I would just say probably like a take-home point is that if you 
if you think you might be struggling, whether it's with relationship with food, whether it's with physical symptoms, mental health symptoms, anything like that, like the key is just actually talking to somebody about it. And, you know, th that will often help you figure out what direction that you want to go in. Um, and talking to somebody, I think, who you trust. And like, even if it's not necessarily a professional, like talking to somebody about, you know, how to seek help for the problem that you're, that you're feeling um, is really helpful. I think we've got this idea, because again, this is another thing that people often perpetuate in Instagram is like, if anyone that doesn't support your journey is just a hater, but actually sometimes people like, are, it's not that they're not supporting your journey, it's that they, they think that your journey isn't supporting you. Yeah. And they want to try and help you figure that out. Um, and I know that there are, you know, there are people who get jealous. There are people who um, aren't supportive of other people achieving things that they don't understand. That does exist. But I think if you're in a situation where pretty much everybody who isn't involved in exactly the same journey that you are is suggesting to you that this isn't a great journey, then it's time to kind of listen to it. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with them. It doesn't mean you have to stop doing what you're doing, but don't just disregard those things because they're not what you want to hear. Yeah, definitely, yeah. 100%. We've spoken, like, in a few past episodes, we've spoken about how it's very common in bodybuilding to, like, surround yourself with people who just do exactly the same thing, and that can actually be a cause of a lot of issues, and it can lead to, like, transitioning away from bodybuilding being such a struggle because you mm. then you lose your entire support network your entire mm. life feels like it's been flipped upside down whereas if you actually keep surrounding yourself with a diverse range of people with different interests and you keep your relationships and friendships outside of bodybuilding intact it can be so so beneficial and like you've just said it can help you it can help you with your perspective on life and it can help you look out for anything that might actually be a bit of a, mm. an issue. And that's the, I think it's the same with anything. Like I think maintaining diverse relationships is, is really, really important. Like if I only hung out with doctors, I'd, like I'd dread to think what I'd be like. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's just, there's no point in, in only surrounding yourself with people who are the same as you, because you just end up echo chambering yourself and that stifles your own, you know your own growth and your own development I guess yeah definitely yeah, definitely but thank you so much for joining us Mike it's been oh, thanks for having me pleasure and thank you to anyone who's taken the time to listen we will put Mike's details in the description box down below so if you want to give him a follow which I recommend you do um his details are down below and if you want to obviously message any of us asking any questions that you have um if you have any feedback from this podcast please reach out and please do like and subscribe if you did enjoy it and we will see you in the next one